One evening in 1971, Yuri Fensel sat at the bar in the Sacramento International Airport. As the country club manager sipped his cocktail, the people around him discussed D.B. Cooper, the man who jumped out of a Boeing 727 over rural Washington with $200,000 in stolen cash. As Yuri tried to eavesdrop, he was distracted by two law enforcement officials who sat in his periphery. They appeared to be watching him. He tried not to look. His eyes had met theirs one too many times, but he couldn't help himself. And when he glanced again, they were approaching. The deputies asked to see Yuri's identification before taking him to the airport security office for questioning. But Yuri had no idea why. There, they searched his wallet and found $800 cash and a military service ID card. Then the deputies escorted him to a room where they interrogated him for three long hours. At the end, they accused Yuri Fensel of being D.B. Cooper. But he couldn't be. He had an airtight alibi for the date in question, with receipts to prove it. So they let him go. Over the course of the FBI's decades-long investigation, hundreds of men like Yeary, who fit Cooper's profile, were questioned. All of them pled innocent. All of them were sent free. But chances are, one was lying. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our final episode on D.B. Cooper, the alias used by a man who hijacked a plane on November 24, 1971, stole $200,000, and got away with it. Last week, we examined the details of Cooper's intricate crime, the media's sensationalized coverage, and the FBI's extensive investigation to find the man behind the alias. This week, we're taking a look at three of the FBI's most likely suspects. We'll explore the possibility of an FBI cover-up and see if a few modern-day sleuths actually solved the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just 
bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On November 24th, 1971, around 2 p.m., a man calling himself Dan Cooper boarded a Seattle-bound Boeing 727 with a bomb. After the plane took off, he handed a flight attendant a note. The note demanded a ransom of $200,000 and four parachutes. It also explained that upon their arrival at the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, the plane needed to be refueled. Seattle was not his intended destination. At 5.40 p.m., Flight 305 landed at SeaTac. Using a flight attendant as a middleman, the FBI met Cooper's demands. They gave him $200,000 in cash and four parachutes. All passengers were set free, except for a handful of members of the flight crew. Cooper's next demands were to fly to, quote, Mexico City, or any place in Mexico, nonstop, gear down, flaps up, don't go over 10,000 feet, all cabin lights out, do not land again in the United States for fuel or any other reason. He also requested the back staircase of the plane remained lowered at all times. The demands couldn't all be met, so the crew, the FBI, and Cooper reached a compromise. Since the plane wouldn't be able to make it to Mexico on a single tank of gas, they'd refuel in either Reno, Nevada or Yuma, Arizona. The plane couldn't successfully take off with the rear staircase down, but they promised to show Cooper how to lower it himself once airborne. By 7.45 p.m., Flight 305 was headed to Mexico. At 8.05 p.m., a warning light came on, indicating that the rear staircase had been fully extended. Around 8.13 p.m., the flight's captain felt the back of the plane dip. The staircase momentarily snapped shut before dropping open again. When the plane arrived in Reno, Nevada, around 11 p.m., Dan Cooper was gone. Afterward, the FBI cobbled together a profile for the man. Based on descriptions provided by flight attendants, they knew he was a white male in his 40s with brown hair and brown eyes. Given his escape tactic, skydiving, they suspected he had professional training, likely in the military. That belief was reinforced by the fact that he specified that his parachutes should not be from the Air Force. It implied that the hijacker knew Air Force parachutes opened automatically, while standard skydiving parachutes allow for more control. The jumper pulls the ripcord whenever they're ready. Cooper also gave the pilot detailed instructions regarding the altitude, speed, and angle the plane should be traveling at. And on the flight from Portland, he pointed out the city of Tacoma, the location of McCord Air Force Base, to one of the flight attendants. This suggested he may have been there, or at least was familiar with picking out military bases from the sky. But the FBI's first and biggest inclination was that D.B. Cooper may have hijacked a plane before or after. 
On April 7, 1972, five months after Cooper disappeared, another man hijacked a plane for ransom using an explosive. He purchased a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. He then boarded the plane wearing a toupee and tan makeup to disguise his appearance. He took a seat in the back row of the plane. In his hand, he held a pineapple grenade. In his waistband, he carried a gun. Once settled, he handed a flight attendant a note that demanded $500,000 in cash and four parachutes. When they landed in San Francisco to let the passengers escape, a middleman was used to transfer the money and the parachutes on board. All passengers were set free, except for a handful of members of the flight crew. When the plane was in the air again, the hijacker lowered the rear stairway, strapped on a parachute, tied the bag of cash to his body, and jumped. The hijacking was eerily similar, but this time, the hijacker left behind a critical piece of evidence, the ransom note he'd written. But before the FBI could even look into the evidence, they received an anonymous call. The tipster told them about a conversation they'd had with a friend. The conversation was about hijacking a plane. The friend's name was Richard McCoy. An investigation started immediately. They discovered that McCoy was a 29-year-old former Green Beret. He'd served two tours in Vietnam. He was a pilot, parachutist, and an expert in demolitions. The FBI contacted the Army and requested any handwriting samples they had on file. It was a match. On April 9th, two days after the second hijacking, the FBI arrived at Richard McCoy's house in Provo, Utah. McCoy was about to leave for the day to report to work for the National Guard. But before he could, officials arrested him. A search of his home found $499,970 and a parachute harness hidden in a closet. Immediately, investigators started celebrating. They thought they found D.B. Cooper. Coming up, McCoy wriggles away and other suspects muddy the investigation. Now back to the story. Five months after D.B. Cooper famously hijacked a plane, Richard McCoy, a decorated Army veteran, carried out an eerily similar scheme. But unlike Cooper, McCoy got caught. He was confirmed as the man who hijacked a plane on April 7, 1972, and was quickly arrested. Afterward, the FBI started to investigate whether Richard McCoy was also D.B. Cooper. McCoy's age didn't fit the profile. A 29-year-old was a far cry from a man in his mid-40s. But given an anonymous note they received that stated Cooper might have put putty on his face to disguise himself, they forgave the discrepancy. When they showed McCoy's sister-in-law and mother-in-law a picture of the black clip-on tie Cooper had left behind on Flight 305, they recognized it as something similar to what McCoy would wear. The next step was to investigate McCoy's financials and phone records. On November 23, 1971, the night prior to Cooper's hijacking, McCoy had filled up his car at a gas station in Cedar City, 
several hours south of his home in Provo, Utah, en route to Las Vegas. Someone later placed a collect call to McCoy's home from the Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas. McCoy could have driven from Cedar City to Las Vegas. He then might have flown to Portland, Oregon, the city where D.B. Cooper first boarded Flight 305. He had enough time, but the question became, did he? McCoy had the military training and expertise to pull off both hijackings. The similarities were self-evident. But there were other discrepancies besides McCoy's age. His eyes were sky blue, while witnesses told the FBI that Cooper's were brown. And while McCoy never explained the charges for gas in Las Vegas or the collect call from the hotel, he did provide an alibi for the afternoon of Cooper's hijacking. He said he spent Thanksgiving at home with his wife. He'd even helped her prepare the turkey for dinner. She corroborated his story. The FBI chose not to press further. They knew McCoy would be serving a 45-year-long sentence for the hijacking that they did have proof he executed. What they didn't know was that McCoy didn't plan on serving the whole sentence. On August 10, 1974, Richard McCoy and three of his fellow inmates stole a garbage truck and used it to escape the United States Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Three months later, the FBI located McCoy in Virginia. They broke into the house he was staying in and waited for him to return. When McCoy arrived, he fired a gun at the agents, but they fired back. Richard McCoy died at the scene and he took any secrets he might have had with him. Still, the FBI continued their investigation long past McCoy's death. After all, McCoy could have been a copycat, and believe it or not, hijacking a plane wasn't uncommon in the 60s and 70s. They even had a term for it, skyjacking. It was a very different time for air travel. Passengers weren't required to show photo ID, let alone have their bags examined or walk through metal detectors. From 1961 to 1972, there were 159 skyjackings over America, which meant if the FBI followed the same trail that led to Richard McCoy, they would find a lot of potential suspects. The only reason the media sensationalized D.B. Cooper's hijacking was because it was irregular. It had no ulterior motive. He hadn't promoted radical beliefs. He committed no act of violence. Nobody was harmed. In fact, the other passengers had no idea anything had happened until they stepped off the plane to a slew of FBI agents. Which is why, similar to gangsters like John Dillinger, the public considered D.B. Cooper a Robin Hood figure. More than anything, the FBI wanted to end that narrative by finding the man responsible. And because of the popularity of the case, the FBI received calls from people who claimed to know D.B. Cooper's real identity for decades. At some point in the early 2000s, more than 20 years after the fact, Lyle Christensen watched an Unsolved Mysteries episode that featured Cooper's famous skyjacking. Afterward, he was convinced that his brother, Kenneth, was responsible. 
Kenneth Christensen had served in World War II. He enlisted in the Army at 18 in the spring of 1944. He joined the paratroopers during basic training. As a member of the 11th Airborne Division, he was trained to land in difficult terrain, like jungles of the South Pacific. But by the time the Army shipped him overseas, World War II was over, and Christensen ended up working as a mail clerk on base in Japan. For fun, he jumped out of planes. Upon his return home, he started working at Northwest Orient Airlines, the same airline Cooper had hijacked. And in November 1971, Kenneth was a flight attendant in his mid-40s, 44 to be exact. Lyle believed that his brother had the skills and knowledge required to pull off the crime. Like Cooper, he chain-smoked cigarettes, and the black tie Cooper left behind looked remarkably similar to the one that was part of Kenneth's uniform. And it seems that no one, including his brother, could vouch for Kenneth's whereabouts on the day of the hijacking. Less than a year after the hijacking, Kenneth purchased a house on Bonnie Lake, about an hour south of Seattle, not far from where Cooper was suspected to have landed. Friends and family had no clue how he was able to afford the house on a flight attendant's salary. They assumed Christensen used the bills from the hijacking. According to some sources, after Kenneth's death from cancer in 1994, his family found a box of newspaper clippings about Northwest Airlines. They dated from the 50s to just before the hijacking in November 1971. After that, Kenneth apparently stopped clipping, despite the fact that the media's coverage of the airline only became more extensive thanks to D.B. Cooper. But Kenneth was never considered a primary suspect by the FBI. They were convinced it couldn't have been an inside job. In 2007, journalist Jeffrey Gray took it upon himself to investigate Lyle's claims about Kenneth. After getting Lyle's full story, Gray approached the former lead detective on the case, Ralph Himmelsbach, to get his thoughts. Himmelsbach admitted they'd never considered Cooper might have been an employee of Northwest Airlines. But in reference to flight attendants, he told the journalist, they are exceptional people. They're head and shoulders above the standards and the values and the character of normal, average Americans. Gray slid a picture of Kenneth across the table to Himmelsbach. The agent studied it carefully, but shook his head no. It couldn't be him. Cooper was between 5'10 and 6 feet tall and weighed around 180 pounds. Kenneth was 5'8 and 150 pounds at the time of the hijacking. Cooper had a full head of hair while Kenneth was balding. And Kenneth's eyes were hazel, not brown. Not to mention, he had no criminal past. But while Kenneth had no prior record, there were plenty of criminals that fit Cooper's profile. For one, Robert Rackstraw. In his lifetime, Rackstraw had many criminal titles. Grifter, con artist, abuser, check forger, thief, alleged murderer. Apparently, he was highly intelligent easily bored, and always looking to score big. Rackstraw first made headlines when he was 20 years old. In 1963, 
cops arrested him for using a fake ID. About an hour later, after dozing off while smoking, he set fire to the mattress in his cell. The next year, Rackstraw joined the Army. According to him, it was the in thing to do. That, and he wanted to follow in his veteran stepfather's footsteps. But in his application, the high school dropout lied and said he'd attended college. At the time, no one noticed. And the military seemed to have a positive influence on Rackstraw. He started to turn his life around. He got married. He had three loving children. All the while, the Army provided him with the high-octane lifestyle he craved without needing to resort to crime. They taught him to execute high-altitude parachute jumps and gave him an eight-week course on explosives. And with this, he thrived. By summer 1969, Rackstra had been promoted to sergeant. And with four months of advanced flight training under his belt, he shipped off to Vietnam. Rackstraw first worked as a mechanic fixing battered helicopters. But apparently, he then trained to become a pilot, flying unauthorized missions to find enemy tunnels and blow them up. In Vietnam, Rackstraw came into contact with the CIA. He allegedly befriended an agent whom he helped perform missions that were off the record. Then, in June 1971, Rackstraw's world fell apart. After years of abusing his wife, a particularly bad altercation led to an investigation, and officials started to uncover the deception of his past. First, they found that he'd lied about his college education. But then, apparently, they found evidence to suggest he'd lied about his rank in the military and about the medals he'd been awarded, an infraction worthy of dismissal. So, after seven years of service, 28-year-old Rackstraw was forced to resign for conduct unbecoming an officer. He then went to stay at his parents' home in Valley Springs, California. There, Rackstraw planned for his future, whether or not he knew how explosive it would be. Coming up, Rackstraw flees to Iran. Now, back to our story. In 1971, after seven years of service, the Army forced Sergeant Robert Rackstraw to resign. He'd lied about his credentials, rank, and accolades. He then moved to his parents' house in the remote region of Valley Springs, California. From there, Rackstraw operated a number of businesses, many of which were scams. For instance, in the mid-70s, he ran a print shop that he used to create fraudulent checks. He cashed them to the tune of $75,000. Anticipating a potential run-in with law enforcement, Rackstraw flew to Iran in 1978. He began working for a helicopter company, but the FBI had tracked him down. Eventually, they informed Rackstraw's employer of his crimes, and he was fired. By that time, the State Department had canceled his passport, which forced him to return to the States. Once his plane arrived in New York in February 1978, he was arrested for several felonies, including the suspected murder of his stepfather. As Rackstraw sat in a cell, police noticed 
that he bore a striking resemblance to the D.B. Cooper composite. He had the right height and build, the same color hair and eyes. When pressed by authorities, Rackstraw admitted to being in the Washington area at the time of the hijacking. In fact, except for his age, no one could find anything to suggest that Rackstraw wasn't D.B. Cooper. In 1971, he was 28. During an interview with Peter Noyes of NBC, Rackstraw was asked if he should be considered a suspect. He replied, quote, Oh yes, if I was an investigator, definitely so. I wouldn't discount myself or a person like myself. Then, in 1979, the FBI announced that Rackstraw was no longer considered a primary suspect. Their reasoning? It seemed like a combination of lack of evidence, his age, and the sheer volume of other suspects that required their attention. But even at the time, not everyone at the Bureau agreed with the decision to dismiss Rackstraw. Many believed he was their guy. He was D.B. Cooper. Rackstraw was released from prison in 1980. He'd served for a little over a year. After that, as far as we can tell, Rackstraw led rather a quiet life. He earned a college degree, then a Juris Doctorate in 1993, and an LLM, a Master of Laws. Apparently, he occasionally made off-handed remarks with friends about how he was the real D.B. Cooper. But he'd always follow it up with the fact that he was just kidding. But in 2011, one citizen sleuth became convinced that he wasn't. Tom Colbert owned a business that solicited true, interesting stories, often turning them into films and TV series. Most days, the tips he got were bizarre. Sometimes they were interesting, but few really grabbed his attention. Then one day, a caller mentioned a large sum of money that had once been found along the Columbia River in Tinabar, Washington. The tipster was referring to $5,800 that an eight-year-old had found buried on a beach in February 1980. The money belonged to D.B. Cooper. It was one of the few clues the FBI found after the hijacking. Colbert was fascinated by the story and began to dig deeper. Soon, he found himself looking at suspects. He took a particular interest in Robert Rackstraw. He even sent some photos of Rackstraw to an expert to compare with the composite sketch of Cooper. After comparing, the expert believed there were nine points that matched up, including the brown eyes, short mouth, and the location of the ears. Colbert then combed through Rackstraw's military records. He learned about his experiences in Vietnam and his parachuting, demolition, and pilot training. The more Colbert investigated, the more convinced he became that Rackstraw was Cooper. He became so convinced that he reached out to the FBI. Colbert offered agents the opportunity to work with him on his investigation. He believed he was really onto something. The agents politely declined. So Colbert teamed up with a group of investigators to write a book and make a documentary for the History Channel about the case. During their investigation, Rackstraw was still alive, and Colbert desperately wanted an interview with him. In 2013, after receiving no response to any of their communications, 
the documentary crew decided to surprise a then 70-year-old Rackstraw. They showed up at his boat shop to confront him face to face. What followed was a bit of a disaster. An argument broke out. Rackstraw admitted nothing. The footage they shot didn't include a lot of substance. Colbert later received an email from Rackstraw's lawyer informing him that all future communication with Rackstraw must go through him. But by 2016, the documentary team had amassed enough worthwhile evidence that they decided to present it to the FBI. It included DNA, hidden codes from letters allegedly written by Cooper, and testimony from a few of Rackstraw's former conspirators. Colbert was confident he had solved the hijacking case. In July, the FBI responded. They told Colbert that there was no longer any investigation into the identity of D.B. Cooper. They'd only reopen the case if he could find key evidence, the missing parachute or money that matched the serial numbers on record. That's it. So Colbert accused the FBI of a cover-up. He theorized that the FBI wanted information regarding Rackstraw's illicit involvement with the CIA in Vietnam to remain buried. Given the information Colbert could find, he could only imagine the information he couldn't. He then sued the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act to reopen the case. As a result, a federal judge ordered the FBI to release their files on the D.B. Cooper hijacking. Colbert and his team poured through thousands of pages, allegedly finding more evidence that supported his conclusion. But they weren't able to prove it without a doubt. To this day, federal authorities are still uninterested in Colbert's findings. When asked by a reporter if they cared to comment on the citizen sleuth, the FBI declined. While Colbert still believes that Rackstraw is the real D.B. Cooper, he won't be getting his confession. Robert Rackstraw died in July 2019 at the age of 75 from complications relating to his heart. There are no longer any living suspects. Today, the hijacking of Northwest Flight 305 is the only unsolved case of air piracy in the United States. Whether it will ever be solved is a mystery unto itself. The three suspects we have discussed are only a few of the men that the FBI and the public considered viable. But they're a few of the most compelling. Given the evidence, the most likely candidate seems to be Robert Rackstraw. He does look remarkably like the composite sketch. That said, it's not hard to find a brunette white man in his mid-40s with brown eyes. But much harder to find one with military, explosive, and pilot training who was in Washington at the time and had a criminal record. Not to mention he had a devil-may-care attitude and was always looking for the next big thing. Stealing $200,000 and getting away might have just been the feather in his cap. But just as in 1971, there's no concrete evidence. And we don't know what happened to most of the money. There may be $194,200 somewhere in the Pacific Northwest waiting to be found. 
it might still be buried somewhere in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest under mounds of dirt and volcanic ash. Perhaps it's in a storage unit somewhere, in pristine condition, waiting for someone to claim it. Or maybe Cooper didn't survive the jump, and he's lying somewhere at the bottom of a lake or an ocean. Maybe Cooper's biggest scam was convincing everyone he knew what he was doing. Maybe he took much more than $200,000. He stole years of time and energy from everyone who ever wondered who was D.B. Cooper and cared enough to jump after him, diving down the rabbit hole. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on D.B. Cooper, among the many sources we used, we found Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper by Jeffrey Gray, and The Last Master Outlaw by Thomas Colbert and Tom Salazi, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. See you next week. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Teresa Watson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>